0: And uh for those of you that don't know, and most of you won't know, this is one of our last podcasts from this office at least. We're making making the trek back to uh to the old stomping grounds in Pasadena. So you're gonna see a new background here coming soon. We may have one more in us here, but it's good to good to I guess wrap it up here. And no better place to yeah, to wrap it up than uh than the private markets, you know. I think we've seen Justin over the past couple of weeks just The private markets have been in the news a lot. We've had Silicon Valley Bank that. You know, Silicon Valley is really, I think, what most people's heads go to when they start to think about private markets in the company ownership space. Uh, obviously there's private markets with real estate and that world is, is huge. And I think you can think about it in different ways. But as we enter this year and with clients, obviously paychecks are starting to come in for baseball players. We're setting annual plans for other clients, uh, of other sports or our founder, founder clients. You know, we're starting to think about what the private market allocation looks like for this year. So thought it'd be fun for us to just walk through, again, some basic fundamentals. You know, what are the private markets? Maybe a definition of that. You know, why do we participate? in the first place. Uh, and then ultimately, you know, how do we know it's time for a client to actually participate in the private markets? Cause there are, you know, there's lots of advantages to it, but there's also some, some some things that make it a little bit more uh, difficult for some people. So let's just jump from the top. Pretty simple question, but you know, what are the private markets? You know, when we talk about the private markets, you know, how would you define that?
1: Sure. Uh, so I'll start really, really broad. There's private, equity markets or, or ownership in companies. There's public equity markets, which hopefully everyone's familiar with. There's private debt markets. There's p- public debt markets as well. Private real estate markets and public real estate markets. You can kind of go, go down the list. But real broadly speaking, private markets represent a wide swath of investments that don't have to go through certain reporting requirements. They don't trade on formal exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. And typically, uh, they, they range in size. I mean, you can have your mom and pop car wash or dry cleaner down the street all the way up to some of the world's largest companies being private. So they span a really, really wide range, both of type, equity, debt, real estate, et cetera, but then also size, really across the board. Whereas in the public markets, you do have a range of size and type, but it's a little bit more concentrated on the larger side of the spectrum. So I think real, real high level, that is private markets, maybe getting into certain uh, stages or types of private market investing. You kind of alluded, or you did allude to, to Silicon Valley. That's certainly the epicenter of venture capital. And venture capital is where Venture capitalists or investors, as they're called, are taking a venture or they're, they're really taking risk in starting new companies. In some cases, they're starting completely new marketplaces. And then you go into traditional private equity, which is really, you know, these are kind of already proven quantities, these companies in the private equity space. And then debt similarly is, is generally in the private kind of traditional private equity space. So I'll, I'll stop there and. and and keep it high level. No, I
0: think that's great. And we often talk about some stats and these are are rough stats, but, you know, when you look at all the companies in the United States, I think it's something like only 2% of them are actually publicly traded or globally. So, you know, 98% of companies are actually in this private market space. And I think we hone in just on actual company, private companies that would be good for today and we can do real estate another day, but, or, Debt, etc. Um, but just thinking about that, so we've got this this body right of companies that we could potentially invest in. And I think what you you hit on there is, you know, there are some benefits. Obviously, uh, there's some downsides, and it really as we start to unpack the different layers of what those private markets hold right what we start to unpack what that looks like and just by reference with the public markets right that two percent that actually is traded what you get with that is you get really a lot of transparency Mm -hmm. right you get a ton of information that's why we believe you know when we build your guys's uh, portfolios and we build that stock side when we're doing it in the public markets we don't think we're you know, more clever than somebody else. We have access to some information better than somebody else. And so, you know, it's because that information is out there and available to everybody. The other big part of it is liquidity, right? If I'm sitting here today and I want to go make a purchase, I can look at my stock portfolio and it might not be the right time, but I could sell that and turn it into cash and go do what I want with it. I'd love for you to hit on a little bit, you know, what starts to happen when we go to the private markets? You know, I think Obviously, you it can't, all changes. You yeah. Can't go just uh, cash a check and, you know, maybe talk a little bit about that. And then on the heels of that, we could maybe dig into because of some of these factors. You know, when does this come into play for clients?
1: Yeah. Um, so uh, touching on the information side, it, it, the, the, the coin is completely flipped in the private markets. There aren't a set of rules. You can't defraud anybody. So in a sense, there are some basic rules that have to exist in, in the private markets, but versus the public markets, I mean, it's, let's call it the wild, wild west, if you will, for, for an extreme kind of visual example where You've used this in this example in the past, right? We own a small bit or a privately held business, small business. If we were to go to sell that, we could give different investors different information. There's not a bare minimum amount. Again, we couldn't lie to them, but we could give people different amounts of information. In the public markets, you can't do that. You do that you, you, and someone acts on it becomes insider trading, which is a term probably familiar and you want to avoid that. But then the to the point around liquidity. These markets, the private market is large, but there isn't this place you get to go to each and every day to trade, right? That's kind of the typical visual of, of a market. There isn't a marketplace for the private markets, even though we're calling it the private markets. Now, uh, it doesn't mean you can't actually liquidate your investments, but it's just a lot harder. You have to go search out a buyer. Maybe you have to hire a middleman or a broker to find a buyer. Maybe you're an investor in a fund and you don't even get to decide when an actual underlying investment is liquidated. Or if that's the case, you can go to a secondary market buyer that might buy your interest in a fund. And I'll stop there because I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole. But suffice it to say, there's there's just a lot more nuance. There's a lot more difficulty. There's a lot more challenge. But with that challenge, that's actually one of the reasons why you you expect a higher return. It's called an illiquidity premium. You can't just turn your money around right when you need it in a very easy, easy way. And it also costs more money to do so when when it's time to go do that. And that illiquidity premium is one example or one reason why you have a high expected return in the private markets. And it's proven itself over time. But there, there are many others.
0: And I think that's why a good time to turn to, that's why the government does come in and set some different guidelines to how you, you know, who can actually participate in these private markets. And so, you know, one, one first step is something called the accredited investor. So they actually say that you have to have a million dollar net worth. Or make what two or three, 300 grand, uh, over the two out of the last three years. And, you know, that's a base level that they say, like, ah, you get to come in and you get to participate in this market. We often analogize it, uh, to, to, well, I guess anybody that knows anything about the golf world, you know, there are country clubs out there, right? If you have. A certain amount of money, you probably can go join a country club. And then, you know, they, there's probably some social aspect to that where that you go through an application process. Somebody has to vet you. And then if you can write the check and they say like, Hey, yeah, we want you in, then you can join the country club. And I think that's the accredited investor, right? Like you meet this, these criteria, then you go find the right private company they say yeah we want you to invest in this company and we'll we'll take that investment and invite you in but for those of us that are golf fans or you know things uh there are different levels of country clubs right <laughs> uh, there's also uh, this little place called Augusta National that uh, we're going to see pretty Big tournament in in the next couple of weeks, right? You could have all the money in the world. You show up, you know.
1: You're not getting in. You're yeah. not getting
0: in, Gusta. <laughs> right? The membership committee. There, you, you got to have the social sway. Right. It's like there's the same thing in in this world, right? Of the private markets. The next step up is what we call a qualified purchaser, and the government actually says, okay, this is five million of investable assets or more. qualify as a qualified purchaser. And the reality is if you spend time in in specifically the venture capital world, et cetera, the best companies want qualified purchasers. It's it's typically how it works. And so, you know, this is that next level. And then, you know, we certainly could delve into a future podcast on the social aspect and getting access to the right funds and all that type of stuff. But for today's purposes, you know, really for clients that are listening, there may be some of you guys that Aren't quite there yet, right? Like we've, we've brought you on clients because we have a very convicted belief that you're going to, you know, have a net worth of $30 million uh, or investable assets of $30 million or more in the future, but we're still building towards that. And we haven't opened this up yet. Uh, On the flip side, for those of you listening that are participating, you know, you meet these qualifications. We're able to give access to this and we're pretty careful and systematic about it, right? Because You know, you need to be in a financial position to be here for the long haul. So maybe even talk a little bit about the systematic nature of how we look at things and why this is so
1: important. And I'd even just hit on, too, there's a rationale. We're not going to pass judgment on whether the criteria that's out there is correct or not. I mean, there's plenty of debate going on within the world of uh, private market legal uh, opinion at the moment. But the the logic is that you need to be sophisticated to play in these markets because these markets are more risky. There's just there's like to your point, there's more opportunity there, but there's also a lot more junk, if you will. And so by putting this criteria in place, it's an assumption or at least a a measurement, a proxy measurement of, of sophistication. We, to your point, kind of take it even further step forward. And think a lot about access and and whatnot. And obviously we do this on a daily basis and can get a lot more comfortable than the average person, even if they are of high net worth. But taking a step further beyond access as well as thinking about it in a systematized process. We know diversification is a great benefit. we talk about that a ton, especially in light of what's going on in the market, both public and private markets right now with SVB or just the volatility in the public markets. Diversification is always your friend. You can rely on that regardless of what your investment strategy is, and you should rely on that across the board. And again, private market's no different. So we like to see participation over what's called multiple vintages. The way in which private market funds typically work, you have a vintage. So this year, it's going to be 2023 vintage funds that are really created in raising capital and starting to deploy capital. And all those funds kind of get lumped together when they get compared to each other. We know that there are going to be good vintages and bad vintages. There are cycles in the private markets just like there are cycles in the public markets. But if we can build a plan and, and approach for you guys uh, within our portfolio construction that assumes we're going to at least participate in five vintages, we get really comfortable with that because we're getting time diversification. But then we're also, keep in mind, getting diversification across funds. We're getting diversification ac- across companies. And the hope there is... The, the assumption, the model is that that gives us confidence that we will see the higher expected return from the private markets. We should see the higher expected return from the private markets over that long period of time to give you the result that, that you deserve.
0: And I think that's a great place to wrap up because I was going to bring, bring it around to this is, you know, for clients you're listening to this, I'm sure you're like, holy cow, like why in the heck would we even participate? There are all these loopholes. There's this complexity. I'm tying up my money and you hit the short punchline to that is higher expected returns. Right. And if we're dealing with multi-generational you know, kind of time frames and investment decisions like we are for most of you guys, we want our money that we're not going to use in our lifetime to be allocated to the highest expected returns. And so when we work through your priorities and we lay out, hey, this is what it's going to take to support the life that you envision, then we have assets in excess of that very simply. Uh, we want those to to have the highest expected returns humanly possible. And that's where these investments lie. And so why we take the time and the effort we spend so much time in Silicon Valley and participating in the venture market specifically, so that we can participate for our clients in these areas of the market. So we'll wrap up for today, a lot more to unpack and we can unpack this in future episodes. If you guys find it interesting, as you know, you can text us that number 602-704-5574 with any questions you have, and we'd love to address them in the future. And until next time, own your wealth, make an impact and always be a pro.